reminder to us to never go man's way. Little book, Roland Allen. I think it's out of print. Little book, like just that thick. Paul's ways or our ways? I go Paul's ways. He went out, he started the church, got there. Ten people, twelve people got saved. God directed, you're the pastor, you're the elders. See you later. Paul didn't raise funds for them. If anything, biblically, we should take an offering from the missions and bring it back here. Because Paul did that for the poor saints. He took an offering from the Gentiles to come back home to Jerusalem. All right? So we've tweaked it some way. Okay? Now, there may be a legitimate time because of a circumstance that may be a little different, but for the most part, God is able to build His church and He will do it without the hindrance of man. Very, very important. The politics gets in, the power play gets in, and, and the favoritism and nepotism and everything else, and, and, and what a horrible example the church becomes. Rather than God getting the glory, He gets the blame all the time. And so, um, again, I commend you as a body for your obedience, your love for the Lord, and your commitment to be part of the work of God in this kingdom. Let me pray. We're going to continue Luke next time. Uh, with the whole bustle and hustle, I, I want to speak to you about the doctrine of God as nature. Father, thank you for your goodness and love. Give us wisdom now as we look to your word. We thank you for your grace. And Lord, uh, we just thank you for the churches that you've raised up there. And Lord, as they look to you and continually depend upon you, Lord, we pray for Pastor Hernando, Lord, the location that he has to leave, looking for another one. But Lord, you took us uh, on, a, on a just... Uh, uh, tent ministry for six and a half years and you've always found us a place you are the same here as you are there lord and so we lift them to you we commend them to you bless them lord and speak to us now lord in jesus name amen all right the message is entitled the doctrine of god his nature in the history of man reveals many twisted and distorted views about god and the present is no different as you know it. The Greeks portrayed the nature of their gods as an extension of mortal man. Uh, deity is often more sensual, more depraved, and more deceiving than man himself. In the Humanist Manifesto 2, listen to what it says. And I'm quoting. The Secular Humanist Declaration of 1981 says, We consider the universe to be dynamic scene of natural forces that are most effectively understood by scientific inquiry. We find that traditional views of the existence of God either are meaningless, have not yet been demonstrated to be true, or are tyrannically exploitative. Secular humanists believe that men and women are free and are responsible for their own destinies and that they cannot look towards some transcendent being for salvation. Wow, you talk about a rejection of the gospel, very detailed. Any attempt to run society or the world without God will fail, as you know. And this is uh, equally true of those who believe in a supreme being, but an unbiblical view of who he is. And so whatever view is brought forth by man to communicate God and his nature will always be wrong if it's not coming from the revelation of God, the Bible. It's the only way we know who God is and what he is. So what I want to do is... Um, Look at the nature of God by looking at three aspects regarding His nature. First, we want to look at the erroneous views of the nature of God. A few of them. Then we'll move to the biblical view of the nature of God so we can see the contrast and the correction of it. And then thirdly, we'll finish with scriptural view of the personal nature of God because he, God doesn't want to just be known as God. He wants to know that He's personal. He's interested in you individually and what He wants to do, which ultimately is salvation. And so, let me... Um, Look at some of the erroneous views of the nature of God. We'll begin with the um, polytheism, which is a very erroneous view about God. Polytheism is a belief and worship of many gods, all having different powers and authorities. So it's a multiplicity of gods. Uh, the person of Adam and Eve um, 
new one God. It's called monotheism. And after the fall, the world corrupted itself into the worship of many gods, which is polytheism. You have Genesis 4.26 in the Tower of Babel, Genesis 4.11. You have polytheism. Now, you, you young people that are going to university and colleges, they, they teach you in anthropology that man began with many gods and then corrupted itself into one god. Just the reverse. <laughs> How interesting. The Bible denies polytheism for Isaiah. Listen to him. Isaiah 44, 6 says, I am the first, the last, the, the, besides me, there is no God. Very clear. From 40 on down, God says that over and over and over again. The first two chapters of Genesis, as you know, clearly tells us that one God created everything. Therefore, man is not to fear or worship any of the creation. Creation was made for the benefit of man. We're not to fear it or to worship it. We have Old Testament passages, examples of such practices by the heathen of the land. In Exodus 12, 12, um, it says, And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So the judgment of the Exodus was against the gods of Egypt. The, the frogs, the Nile, the, 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 the lice, all of them. They were gods that they worshipped. And God demonstrated they were no gods at all. They had no power. In 1 Kings, um, the men of Syria said that they uh, had lost the battle to Israel because they were uh, the gods of the, uh, of the hills. And therefore, they said, let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they, First Kings twenty twenty three. So, you know, their gods are only powerful if they're in their location. They're, 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 they're bound to their certain region and area. And these type of beliefs are all over the world. The uh, contest of Carmel, the prophets of Baal against the prophets of God, um, Elijah, um, defeated them. Uh, you have the god Molech, Baal, Asherah, Dagon, all these gods, local gods, deities that they worshipped. There's also examples in the New Testament, as you know. Um, in Acts 17, Paul, there in Athens, he looked upon all the uh, temples and all the, uh, the idol gods around and he says, I perceive that you're very religious, uh, but you have one God here who's called the unknown God. I want to talk to you about him. I know who he is. But it goes to show you that they didn't want to miss any God. So after all the statues and temples, they said, Let, let's put one to the unknown God in case there's one we've missed. And, and, you know, and, and if you're an ex-Catholic, you understand what I'm talking about. Because you have your patrons, your saints, your virgins, you have your scapular, you have your rosary, you have your, you know, the, you make the sign of the cross, the short one, and when it's really bad, then you make the long one, you know what I mean? I mean, I still remember it. I mean, you know, you just want to cover your grounds, religious people, you understand? And you know, your dash looks like a, like a museum, and then you get in a wreck, and the wreck doesn't kill you, it's the statue that stabbed you that killed you, you know? I mean, idolatry, we're going to get to idolatry a little bit, you know what I mean? It's amazing. Now, I, I was born Catholic. I was born in Mexico City and that. I've been around the world Catholicism. Don't come and argue me about Catholicism. I know it to the bone. Okay? Catholicism here in the United States is a pussycat. In Mexico, Central America, Philippines, it's a lion. It will kill you. So, if you think Catholic Church is a little pussycat, you, you've, got, you've got to find out the truth. There's no way. Now, They changed the glory of the incorruptible God, Paul says in Romans one twenty three, into the image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. And uh, this is the problem with idolatry. Uh, you, you, you want to make a representation of God. So you're, you have eyes, you have hands, you put little eyes, little hands, this and that, and, and then you take him and you put him up in your altar, and all of a sudden there's an earthquake and he falls off, breaks his neck, so you got to get some crazy glue. Oh, and, and put them together and put them back up the way you should pray to me. But that's the foolishness of idolatry. Now, there's also pantheism. Pantheism is another distorted view which has uh, dominated most of Indians, India's religions. Pantheism says that everything is God and does not separate God from the nature and nature itself. Um, the word comes from the Greek words, all is God, which is monism. In contrast to the Christian view of monotheism, the belief of one God in three persons. So monotheism is one God, three persons, the Trinity. Monism is one God, no Trinity. 
Okay? Very, very distinct. Now, during the 70s, if you guys remember, the, this philosophy permeated our society with many mixing biblical truth with lies. Um, there were groups such like the Children of God, uh, uh, David Moses, the Moonies, and uh, TM classes, all kinds of stuff through the uh, influence of the Beatles and everybody else with the Eastern mysticism. It's no different today. Uh, the New Age movement is nothing but revive Hinduism, believing in Avatar. In fact, they had a movie, Avatar. You saw the Tree of Life there, right? <laughs> it's part of the arts. It's part of the, the uh, Hollywood. It's part of the elitism. It's part of the academic world. It's part of the medical world today. All of this, either as Brahma, Avatar is an incarnation of God. As Brahma, as Vishnu, or Shiva, but neatly packaged in Western dress of crystals, spirit guides, and channelers. Often pantheism believes in the eternity of matter and spontaneous generation of life, which both are refuted by science, let alone the Bible. Uh, you guys remember John Denver, some of you are my age. Rocky Mountain High spoke about the unity and oneness of nature. Now, songs and literature permeate that. Look at your cups of, uh, of Starbucks. They mix all the new age and the oneness and nature and everything. And all-inclusive, diversity, everything, all is one. Nature gives evidence that God is creator. But it doesn't communicate the special revelation of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. So you have general revelation, conscience, creation, history. Special revelation, the gospel. God became man through Jesus Christ, died for your sins, and the Savior of the world. That's the distinction between general and special revelation. Now, pantheism puts God dependent on creation and subject to its curse. Christian science is a form of pantheism, for they say God is all and all is God. That's pantheism. Pantheism defies man by making him part of God. He deifies man as part of God. Even as Shirley MacLaine stood on Malibu, the beach there, and said, I am God, if you remember back in the 80s. Uh, with their book, I call it the Out on a Broken Limb. <laughs> Pantheism claims that Jesus was the first who came to a perfect realization of this great truth when he said, I and the Father are one. So you pick key little words and you take them out of their context and you redefine them subjectively and you contort the Bible. God is the creator and is separate from his creation, the Bible teaches. God is not a tree, a mountain, the sea, nor the universe. God is not limited to nor less than his creation. God is not dependent, but independent of his creation. He created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Fact. No argument, no explanation. God is greater than his creation, controlling and holding everything together. The planets, the stars. God had the nerve to create this world and then spin it around and hang it on nothing. Amazing. Listen to um, Colossians 1, 16 through 17. For by him all things are created, meaning Christ, that are in heaven and earth, Visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, and principalities, and powers, speaking of angels. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist held together. Everything material has the potential of explosion. The scientists don't know where that nucleus of, of the atom doesn't blow up. Okay? And they call it nuclear glue, stuff like that. But the Bible says it's Jesus Christ that holds them together. Uh, it's amazing when you study the atom, the nucleus, the protons, electrons, and all that. Uh, it's amazing. Now, there's also what we are very familiar with is materialism that teaches man is simply an animal and is not really responsible for his actions. 
This is very common today. Yet our conscience denies that. Now we callous it, then it doesn't work anymore. But our conscience worked from birth to a certain age. Then when we kept sinning against it, we calloused and didn't, didn't bother us anymore. Life points to a life source. It's not in vacuum. Design demonstrates the designer and the purposes. This watch here didn't happen out of an explosion. The Big Bang. Big Bang's only in the mind of scientists. There's no such thing as a Big Bang. Who, who lit the Big Bang? We don't know it just happened. No, and there has to be cause and effect. You see, there's no option for them. If they, if, they, if they don't contrive this evolutionary model, then their only option is God. Ooh, God. Ooh, they just can't take it. That's not an option. The goal of materialism is to destroy morality and to have men live on an animal level through the religion of evolution and humanism. Trusting and believing in yourself that we're nothing but animals. If you came from nothing and are produced and the product of chance and when you die you return to nothing, then people have no value and man is not accountable to a creator for he, his or her conduct. If you admit there's a God, then you have to admit that you're going to have to give an account to someone for your life, for what you did, how you live, what you said. People don't like that. Today, many have believed this philosophy of life and teach it in life um, to their own destruction. In fact, 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10 says, If anyone teaches otherwise, meaning apart from the biblical teaching, uh, the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, implying the relationship between God and man, and does not consent to wholesome words, whole healthy words, even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which... Um, it accords to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed and disputed in arguments over words, from which some uh, come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men, corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And you see even a part of the Christian community going this way for the last 30, 40 years through positive confession, Copeland, Price, Company, and all those guys that say if you're a Christian, you should be healthy and wealthy because you're the king's kid. And don't make no negative confession. Just stand on it, claim it, and grab it. Really. Listen to what he says. From such withdraw yourself. Wow. Now godliness with contentment. His great game, for we brought nothing to this world and are certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptations and snares and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men's destruction and perdition. Now listen carefully. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, the love of money. For which some have strayed from the faith. Some, meaning Christians. Non-believers are lost. They don't stray. They are strayed. Some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. So the love of money does not exclude the believer and the destruction. Now, the last one we want to look at is deism, which professes the existence of a personal God who created the world but then withdrew himself and let it to govern itself by natural law, deism. It is also called theistic evolution. Hugh Ross is a theistic evolutionist. He believes this, and he calls himself a Christian. Because you look intellectual to the secular scientific community, and you have the Christian community, which compromises the word of God, and they straddle the fence. It's absolutely unbiblical. And much of this embracement is to accept the millions and billions of years old of the earth, the universe, and this and that. Which you don't need that. If you've been with us through Genesis, Genesis 1 1, and all the way, you see it clearly. We've studied it. Deism denies special revelation, miracles, and providence, and that all truth about God can be discovered by reason. 
The Bible is just a book on the principles of natural religion. If you know anything about the Enlightenment period, it was an age of reason. No longer do we have to be subject to such books like the Bible that just hinder you, but we can figure everything out with reason. That's why it's called the Enlightenment period. The scriptures declare that God is transcendent beyond our reach, understanding, and knowledge. But the Bible equally teaches that His presence is, uh, or eminence is in the world active in the affairs of man and reaching out to man for salvation. And yet, as He is in control of the world and the affairs of the world, He never violates the free will of man. He never does that. And if you go from Genesis to Revelation, you will find heathen and believers resisting and opposing the will of God. And God honors it, lets them do it. But that never thwarts the purposes of God. That's the one neat, nifty little thing about being God. No one can hinder you. Now, it's a problem for you and me and our mind, but not to God. No problem. For in Him we live, we move, we have our being, Paul said to the uh, Athenians there in Acts 17, 28. He's the source. He's created us. He is the source of life. Uh, God sent the Son into the world. Uh, the incarnation in John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and we beheld His glory. as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Holy Spirit was sent from, from the Father and the Son in John 14, 15, and 16. He tells us the three persons of the Godhead. The age of reason in the 18th century produced uh, much deism and deist. God was reasoned away. Man became his own God. Voltaire, Thomas Paine, a couple of deists, many, many others in our history and France's history. The father of deism is Lord Herbert of Cherbury, born 1581 to 1648. Astrophysicist Robert Jastrow, self-proclaimed atheistic, listen to him, quote, At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. He's an acclaimed atheist, but he's an honest one. He knows the evidence of science says God, not evolution. These are some of the erroneous views of the nature of God. There are many others. There's the biblical view of the nature of God, which is the one that we are to understand and embrace and proclaim as Christians. And we're to be very clear about it. God is spirit and God has nothing corporal, visible, and substance, no body, no form. But he is spirit. Jesus told that to the woman of Samaria in John 4, 24. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, Jesus stood in the midst of the disciples affirming what spirit was. Listen to this in Luke 24, 37, 39. This is after the resurrection. He's got a glorified body. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that he, they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubt rise in your heart? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. So God, who has no bodily form or substance, took on a human form of substance for a set time, for a set purpose, for a set goal. And after the resurrection, he still maintained that body, but in a glorified form. And even today, Jesus is the right hand of the Father in that same glorified body, bearing the scars for the sins of the world. Wow. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15 says. The visible form of the invisible God. Paul says, unto the king invisible, the only wise God, 1 Timothy 1.17. We are told Moses endured seeing him who is invisible, Hebrews 11.27. Now, since God is spirit, then is worship 
by nature has to be in spirit and in truth. Spirit refers to who we really are. The real person as God breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life and made him a living soul. The real you and I are spirit. My body is just a vehicle to communicate myself. I have my soul. My soul comprised of intellect, emotions, and will. As a fallen man, my spirit is dead. So my fallen nature controls my intellect, emotion, and will. Once I'm born again, my spirit's alive. My spirit now houses the temple of God. And now my soul, my intellect, my emotion, my will is subject to the spirit of God, directed by the spirit of God. And I can honor God and obey God. Never sinless, never perfect, but now I am a child of God. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says that we were regenerated and made alive by the Spirit of God, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So, Spirit is the real you. Truth refers to the Word of God, the revelation of Himself, which reveals what He will honor and accept. So it's important to know God's word so I can know what God accepts, what he doesn't accept, what he reveals about himself so I can compare and correct the twisted understanding and, uh, and declaration about God. Jesus told the woman Samaria again, you must worship God in the spirit and the truth. Now she said, we worship here, Mount Gerizim. No, no, no. The worship is of the Jews. They know what they worship. But there's coming a time that... All will worship God in spirit and truth. He's talking about the opening of the church age, grace, the Gentile, and Jew would be one in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Now, the Old Testament sacrifice were till the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9.10 tells us. Um, God is not localized um, to a certain place. In Second Chronicles 2.6, it says, The heavens of heavens cannot contain you. He's infinite. Man is finite. Um, God created everything. He's beyond anything and everything. He's in control of everything. Nothing is greater than Him. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 2.5. He says, We are living stones built up a spiritual house to offer a spiritual sacrifice except to God in Jesus Christ. So God builds His church. He adds to His church living people that He makes alive. They are the children of God, the family of God, the church of God. And He dwells and directs and guides and breathes and provides and takes care of His church. An extension of Himself. But His church is not Him and is not equal to Him, but is a product of Him. Very important. Only by the Spirit of God can we know God or about God. For our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we honor Him now. We don't live the way we used to. Uh, we, we understand that He has made us alive. And that He alone can transform and constantly from day to day. From glory to glory by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, too many worship God in emotionalism. And feeling instead of spirit and truth in the Christian community. Extreme Pentecostalism does that. And it's all emotions. There's no study of the Word of God. There's no understanding of God's Word. It's just, you know, I believe anything and everything. And, and it's, a, it's a, an emotional thing that happens. Maybe I believe God speaks to me at a certain day, at a certain service, a certain location. So then when something goes wrong, i got to go back to that location because that's where God met me. Now, we used to do that as pagans. We would go take our little saint, our little candles, and light them at a certain location. And, and because we know that's where God dwells, and that's where God will answer. And so we localize a God. Well, you can't localize God. He's eternal. So what is meant when the Bible says that God created man in his image then? Genesis 1.27. Likeness amplifies and specifies the meaning of image so as not to make man another like God. But a creation and faithful representation of God on earth. So we are a product of God. We're not just like God. We're not just another God. An intellectual likeness is included. Able to understand, to think, to reason. For he gave man dominion over the earth. And all the animals were named by Adam in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Can you imagine that? Have you ever thought about that? He said giraffe, hippopotamus, alligator, flea, lice, tick. And just write on down. 
You know how smart Adam was? I heard this uh, Christian teacher teaching a Christian school saying, yeah, well, at first Genesis, you know, Adam, Adam didn't quite stand erect. He kind of bent over and all that. And he didn't really speak uh, um, because uh, he kind of grunted at first. And the 12-year-old, who's a very grounded Christian, said, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God spoke to Adam and Adam spoke to God. Just busted the teacher. He was grounded in the Word of God. A moral likeness for everything God made was very good, Genesis 1.31. So we have the potential for being moral. But by our fallen nature, we are pulled towards immorality, but we have a moral potential. The spiritual likeness, the living soul to be in fellowship with God, Genesis 2.7 and 3.8. Adam and Eve, they talk with God, they fellowship, they walk with God. We have that potential. A potential for immortality. The day that you eat, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. So we have a potential for immortality. Now that the fall, we have to make that choice individually. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve were to live eternally with God. But once they partook, death entered in through sin. And now it's passed to all men. Romans 5, 12. And therefore now individually, we make that decision whether we're going to spend eternity with God or separated from God. And that choice is through Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. There's also a potential of choice and free will. Every tree that you may eat, but of the tree of good and evil you shall not eat. So God gives us volition, free will, choice. And he honors our choice. He doesn't compel you to go to heaven. He doesn't force you to obey. He pleads, he directs, he convicts, he guides, he reproves, he chastens, but he does not force you ever to obey. Those are great attributes that are communicated to us from God, that he himself possesses. Now, what does the New Testament say about the regenerated person then? In Colossians 3.10, listen. Paul tells the Colossians that the believer is said to be renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created him. So once we're born again, now we study the word of God, we're renewed in the knowledge after the image that we were created. Our capacity, our potential in God. In Ephesians 4, 23 through 24, Paul tells the Ephesians that the believer is exhorted to put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, right living and purity, never to sinless perfection, but we can hit the mark now. We live totally different than we used to. And the image and likeness of God means not embodied or visible likeness, but intellectual, moral likeness, knowledge, righteousness, true holiness, which the rest of creation is void of capacity. We are unique, creating the image and likeness of God. Angels are not created that way. Angels are just spirit beings to serve God and to serve us. In fact, the lake of fire, Gehenna, was made for Satan and his angels, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. There is no forgiveness for an angel. There is no redemption for an angel. There is no salvation for an angel. We're created uniquely. In the image and likeness of God. Now, God is unapproachable by man then. God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Exodus thirty-two twenty. Period. Anybody who sees me, who I really am, they'll die. God is so holy and pure that man... If he was present before God and God would reveal himself as who he really is, he would be consumed. That's why Jesus took on human form. He veiled himself. He emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his glory. And he took on a human form so he could walk in the midst of men. Simple. God dwells in the light which no man can approach unto, who no man has seen nor can see, First Timothy 6.16 says. So this is consistent from Old to New Testament. God is a consuming fire. Often he's described like that. Hebrews 12, 29. 
So therefore, God is beyond our being able to see him face to face. God is a consuming fire, meaning he's pure and so beyond us that there's no compatibility between us because of sin between us. Listen to the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. That was the year that the, the, the king Hezekiah had died. And he got his eyes back on the Lord and he saw God on the throne. And the first thing he saw when he saw God and saw himself, he says, Man, I'm in trouble. I'm a sinner. I've got a dirty heart and dirty mouth. Wow. We heard that from Peter also as we've been studying Luke when he was in a boat in a great catch of fish where Peter says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Wow. God has manifested himself in visible forms, though, that we see clearly in Scripture. These are called theophanies, a visible manifestation giving evidence of the presence of God. We find them in the Old Testament um, throughout. Uh, remember, God has no physical likeness. He's the spirit, as he told um, the woman of Samaria. Um, but God often is describing what's called anthropomorphic terms. Anthropomorphic terms being human uh, attributes, the hand of the Lord, the eye of the Lord, okay? Uh, using human terms to describe what God is doing so we're aware of what's happening. It doesn't mean that God has a hand, that he has eyes. Because then you read and he gathered them under his wing. Now you're going to say he's a chicken? Uh, um, you know, he uses literal language, anthropomorphic, and he uses figurative language to describe protectiveness, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He says, how many times I wanted to gather you as a chick, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Meaning protectiveness, redemption, all of that. Very, very clear. Abraham saw a smoking furnace and the, the burning lamp pass between the sacrifice that he made in covenant with God in Genesis 15, 7. A theophany, that burning lamp. The presence of God. In the burning bush, Moses was told in Exodus 3 to take your shoes off. The place where you stand is holy ground. Theophany. The bush burned but was not consumed. God led his people by a cloud in the day, a pillar by fire by night through the wilderness for 40 years. Exodus 40, 38. Theophanies. So you have many of these. But God has also manifested himself in what's called a Christophany. Um, an appearance of Jesus Christ prior to the New Testament incarnation. Uh, John tells us in John 1.18 that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So, John 1.18 tells us that God, the Father, has never come down. The Son is the only one that reveals the Father. And Jesus confirms this throughout, over and over again. And that means that every time God appeared in human form in the Old Testament, it wasn't the Father. It was the Son. He's known as the angel of the Lord. He appeared to Hagar in Genesis 16, 9. The angel of the Lord. He appeared to Abraham when the three came down and visited him. Two were angels sent to Sodom and Gomorrah for destruction. The other one was God. And he talked to him about the birth of his son. Remember? Okay. Genesis 18. The judges, um, the, the, the uh, angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon in Judges 6. Um, Manoah's. Uh, Samson's father asked the angel of the Lord for his name. Uh, he says it was secret, the word wonderful, in Judges 13. And you remember that Isaiah 9, 6, one of the names of Messiah was a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord sitting upon his throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple there in Isaiah 6, 1, who did Isaiah see? The father or the son? Now, the New Testament is the commentary on the Old Testament. Don't ever reverse it. The new interprets the old. Listen to John 8.56. And John 12.41, I'm sorry. 12.41, John tells us that Isaiah saw and spoke that it was Christ. It was Christ that he saw. So John tells us very clearly. Now, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You saw it, he was glad. In John 8, 56. The Jews responded, you're not even 50 years old. And you, have, you, you say you've seen Abraham. I am that I am, the becoming one. Eternal. The creator. The redeemer. The savior of the world. Amazing. 
So when the Bible says that men saw God, it must be interpreted in light of all that is understood within the, scri- the scriptures. We are told that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders saw God in Exodus 24.10. We are told in Exodus 33.24 that Moses saw God's back parts, the afterglow, when he was up in the mountain with him. How do we explain these things? These recorded events mean that they saw a theophany, a physical, visible manifestation to demonstrate the presence of God, but they did not see God himself because the scripture says no man can see God and live. Very clear, very simple, not that difficult. The Bible uses anthropomorphic terms, which are human qualities to describe God's action, yet it does not mean, again, that God has hands, eyes, etc. Okay? He's a spirit. But he does it for the sake that he might communicate what's going on. Now, God's nature of spirit is seen by his abhorrence to physical images to represent God, which is called idolatry. The explicit details of God's creation in Genesis are um, to simply communicate that he is the creator. And everything that he produced, he produced it. And no aspect of the creation should be worshipped or feared. Listen to Deuteronomy 4.19. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the people under the whole heaven as a heritage. So God knows the idolatrous pagan heart of man after the fall. To worship and to fear the creation under being religious suspicious. Now, Two times it is recorded in the Ten Commandments that no one is to make any image or likeness of God in heaven and earth or beneath the waters in Exodus 20, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 5, 8. God cannot be duplicated in any form. It is strictly prohibited. God calls this idolatry and denounces it through all the prophets. This is what was going on within the land that God had given to them, the land of Canaan. The principle is throughout the Bible. Listen to Isaiah 44, 14, 15 as he gives an example of what was going on at his times. Uh, he cuts down the cedars for himself. He takes up cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees in the forest. He plants the pine and he rains, the rain nourishes it. Then he takes it for a, a man to burn. Uh, For he will take some and warm himself instead of fire. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. So he gets fire to warm himself. He makes some food. Indeed, he makes a, a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. So you chop down a tree. You warm yourself. You make some food. You make a chair. And then you make a god and you bow down to it. Does that make any sense? You're burning your god and he's gone. You're sitting on your god. Wow. God told Ezekiel to speak to the men of Israel who were seeking him, but they had idols in their heart that he would speak to them according to their idols. Ezekiel 14, 2 through 4. There are a lot of people who say, well, I see God. I talk to God all the time, but they're idolaters. They, they seek idols. There's a line where God says, okay, I'll answer you, but I'm going to answer you according to your idols. Deception. Because you're not obeying me that I hate idols. Behind idols are demons, by the way, Paul tells us. Idolatry. The next time you go to buy some donuts, look over the counter. They're feeding Buddha down there. Idols. Demons. Simple. Roland speaks of the unwillingness to retain God and change the glory of the incorruptible God to image of four-footed feet, beasts, so on and so forth. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to the sound of their bodies among them. So God gave them up to vile passions debased minds in Romans one twenty three to 28. God is reaching out and God has declared the hatred of idolatry. God has declared that man has the knowledge of God but didn't want to know God, but rejects God. Man is not ignorant about God. 
He's without excuse. Jeremiah has much to say about idolatry. Uh, Jeremiah 10, 8 says, But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden uh, idol is a worthless doctrine. Everyone is dull-hearted, he says in 10, 14. To put, a sh- uh, put to shame by an image, for his molten image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. And, and he's just full of it, Two thirteen, and and many others, 2.27. In um, the book of Deuteronomy, scriptures are clear. Idolatry uh, will, anyone practicing idolatry will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen carefully. Deuteronomy 4 15 through 19. Take careful heed to yourself, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image to form any figure. The likeness of male, female, likeness of any animal on the earth, likeness of wing, of, uh, something that flies, or, or likeness of anything that creeps on the ground. He goes all the way down, and he says that um, th- this is not your heritage. This is not what I gave you. This is the practice of the heathen of the land who have rejected God. In fact, the authority of Moses is confirmed in Numbers twelve five through eight, where God calls Miriam and and. And his uh, brother Aaron, when they had rebelled against Moses for marrying the Ethiopian, and God says there, you know, Moses is different. I speak to him face to face, not like other people in dark speeches. So he confirms the authority of of Moses, the representative of God, as he's given all this revelation through Genesis uh, uh, to Deuteronomy. It is God's revealed word, inerrant, infallible. It is absolute truth. Paul put it this way, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone uh, named a brother, a Christian, who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater. So there will be people who will come to Christ and they will not maintain or leave the religion at times and you can't do that. Or go back to it. You can't do that. It's impossible. That's 1 Corinthians 5.11. And then in Ephesians 5, 5, Paul says, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, no covetous man, nor an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Simple. Idolatry is not a step towards God. Idolatry is a step away from God. It is a remarkable fact that Sir Isaac Newton, writing on the prophecy of Daniel... Chapter 12, verse 4 said that if they were true, it would be necessary that a new mode of traveling should be invented. For knowledge would be so increased that man would be able to travel at the rate of 50 miles an hour, he said. Voltaire, the French atheist that hated Christianity, true to his spirit of skepticism, said, quote, Now, Look at the mighty man, uh, the mighty mind of Newton, who discovered gravitation when he began to study the book called the Bible. It seems in order to credit it, its fabulous nonsense, he believed that the knowledge of mankind will be so increased that we shall be able to travel 50 miles an hour. The poor doter. Today, even the skeptic would have to say that Newton was a wise philosopher, at least. Voltaire, a poor old doter. The men of faith have always come out on top through history, ladies and gentlemen. The men who trust their reason and the blast. This is the biblical view of the nature of God. Now... Let me finish by giving some scriptural views of the personal nature of God because it's nice to know that he's a creator and what his nature is, but his ultimate goal is to let you know that he loves you and that he cares for you and he wants you to repent of your sins so that he can save you and give you eternal life. He's a personal God. God's personal nature is evident in salvation by, for relationship. Um, in, in John seventeen three, Jesus praying to the Father said, And this is eternal life that they may know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the goal, to be, have a personal relationship. I mean, you can know somebody, you know, pick your favorite football player, basketball player or whatever. Now, you know who they are, you know everything about them, you may know their stats, you may know this and that, but you don't know them. 
a relationship with someone that knows you, you know them. So you may have academic things about God, and you may be studying all that, but if you're not saved, you're not born again. You don't know God. You know about God, certain things, but you don't know God. He took on human form, John 1.14. The Word became flesh. The incarnation was an answer to, to Isaiah's prayer. Listen to Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64.1. All that God would come rent the heavens and that you would come down. He did 700 years later. <laughs> God reveals himself. He cannot be discovered by mere intellect. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 20-24. Read it for yourself. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the spirit of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God by wisdom. It pleased him through the foolishness of message preached to save those who believe. The gospel, the proclamation, the spirit convicting, turning on the light, showing me my lostness, my need of God, calling out to him. He's saving me. Personal. I know God. He knows me. He lives in me. I walk with Him. I get convicted. I want to please Him. That's a personal relationship. Colossians 2, 7-8 says, But we speak the wisdom of the world in mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the age for our glory, which none of the rulers of the world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So, intellectually, Jesus is at the cross. They're walking out. They're going to crucify Him. If they could have intellectually said, Dude, do not touch Him. He's God. They wouldn't have crucified Him. But they looked and said, Ah, He's just another rebel. Another one of those religious weirdos. God must be revealed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and your sinfulness and your need of God. It's not an intellectual quest. Yet once you come to Christ, now you can think clearly. Now you can understand, make decisions the way you're supposed to. The Son of Man did not come to uh, be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He came to save those who were lost. All things have been delivered to me of my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who, and who the Father is except the Son, and one whom the Son will reveal him. Luke ten twenty two. So it's the Son who reveals the Father. Uh, Jesus stands outside of the church, knocking on the door in Revelation three ten. Let me in, because he's been kicked out of the church. Individually, he's knocking on people's hearts to be saved. His coming includes all of mankind, whoever will believe, John 3, 16. Do not believe the doctrine of Calvinism, of unconditional election, that only God chose a few to be saved, and then he damned the rest to predestined uh, damnation. Absolutely unbiblical. I reject that doctrine. Jesus Christ died for all the world, and all the world can be saved if they repent. Simple. You don't need to know Greek, Hebrew, or nothing. You just need to read the word for what it is. Real simple. God deals with us as individuals when we need comfort and strength. You as Christians have experienced this through life. Um, Paul says he's the God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. When you have difficulty in your marriage, with relationship, with your kids, with other people, we've gone through difficult times, tragedies, your comfort, it only comes from God. And we can comfort one another, pray for one another, you know, cry with one another, but when it's you and God and God ministers to you, there is nothing, nothing like it. He's the only one who can make that true. Paul says we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us in Philippians 4.13. In fact, his strength is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12.9, he tells Paul. We're to commend ourselves to him as a faithful creator in our suffering, 1 Peter 4.19. Wow, he's talking to Christians. Personal relationship. The personal nature is seen... In some of his names, the title God, Elohim, represents a creator who has purpose, a goal as a creator. His name is Yahweh, appearing in all capital letters, L-O-R-D. His covenant name to Moses. It's a verb form, to be. He will be all that we allow him to be. Nothing is difficult for him. Is there anything too hard for me? No. The pronunciation of it, we don't know. Is Yahweh, Yahweh, because all the vowels were left out and only the consonants were, 
written in, and yet that was the decision of the Jews, thinking that God was so holy they didn't want to say it or even write it in a certain way, so they left the vowels out. But God didn't tell them to do that. He wanted them to know his name. He had chosen them. The phrase, I am that I am, again, is the verb form, the becoming one. Whatever we need him to be, he's there. We limit the Lord. God does not limit himself. He's just waiting to do things for us if we call upon him. Then you have the title Adonai, which is kind of like Lord equal to Lord in the New Testament. Kurios, meaning master, controller. He's the one that we bow our knee to. Um, And the word father is one of relationship. Now, you never have the word father in the Old Testament. No Jew would ever say, Father, forgive me. No. Never. Now, he is the father of the nation in the Old Testament, it says. But never is it that a Jew ever said or declared or addressed God as father. It's not to the New Testament when he teaches them how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, holy be thy name. Now we have an intimate relationship of a father to a son and a daughter. There's nothing closer. We have the relationship of husband and wife, the marriage of Christ to the bride. Nothing closer. Intimate. There's the name Yahweh Rapha, which means the Lord who heals, or our healer. Um, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace. There's Yahweh Ra, the Lord our shepherd. Yahweh Tzitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Shama, meaning the Lord is there. And so many, many others that he gives in the Old Testament. But the final uh, and complete revelation is Jesus Christ the Savior of the world, the Redeemer, the Lamb of God, who wants to do everything for us as we open our heart to Him. And as we bow to Him, as we fall in love with Him, as we yield to Him, and as we see Him transform us from day to day, from glory to glory by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. God desires you to know the nature of God that you might know Him in a personal way. The place to go to is the Bible alone. It reveals the truth of God. Nowhere else. God is not the the creation, but the one who created all things. He's greater than his creation. God created you after his image and his likeness. But Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eve. And therefore, God sent his son to be the last Adam to redeem us from the sin and the fall. By forgiveness of our sin. John 3.16 He wants to be everything you need as a Christian. And all of us will be brought to the end of ourselves at different periods in our life. I don't care how long you walk with God, ladies and gentlemen. There will come a time, many times in your life, that regardless of how much God has used you and how spiritual you think you are, you will find yourself... That you are just bad to the bone. And God in His patience will minister to you and try to turn you and deal with your heart. And He's the only one that can do that. No man can. No one. He is so good to us. This is a scripture view of the personal nature of God. We'd know nothing about this if he hadn't given us his word. (laughs) We'd be shooting in the dark, man. (laughs) Robert Jastrow. Jastrow. Was first the chairman of NASA's uh, Lunar Exploration Committee, which uh, established a scientific goal uh, for the exploration of the moon during the Apollo lunar landing. Um, In 1961, Dr. Jastrow Uh, set up NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, the U.S. government laboratories in charge of carrying out the research for astronomy and planetary science. Uh, Listen to his words. He said, quote, I am an agnostic, but the facts of science have shown in the beginning God. What an honest atheist. What an honest agnostic. The evidence points to God. Unless you tweak it. Unless you're so dead set on your 
rebellion against God? Or maybe it's just because you think you're God. Hmm. Here you have the three aspects regarding the nature of God should help us. First, knowing the erroneous, some of the erroneous views of the nature of God. Then the biblical view of the nature of God corrects those things. Then the scriptural view of the personal nature of God, which is the bullseye. If you're a sinner, he wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to change your life through repentance by trusting what Jesus did for you, dying for your sins and being risen from the dead. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love. Deal with our hearts and we thank you for your grace. Lord, we pray for those that are here and over the internet to deal with them, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. To repent of your sins. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then the Bible says you can be saved. Calling on his name to forgive you, he will do that right now. It's your prayer of repentance, acknowledging your sinfulness and your need of a Savior. That you know is he and no one else. So this is your prayer if you want to be born again right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made that...